up for Micaiah, y'all. Good morning, Oasis. I had a, a real nice jacket before I came up here. Um, but in order for my mic to work, they had me take off the jacket. So, And I need this mic today because today we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit. And I have a little science experiment for us. Uh, today's Pentecost Sunday. And we're going to get into that a little bit. And I have 30 minutes. I need every second of that. So I'm just hopping to it. My wife, Kimmy, is sitting here in the front row. I love you so much. <laughs> to Pastor Julian, to Pastor Christina, thank you always for an opportunity to stand on this platform to share God's word. Join me in the book of Acts. In the first chapter. And we'll start at the fourth verse. The book of Acts, chapter 1, we'll start at uh, verse number 4. And I'm going to do a little throwback for us. I'm going to be reading from the New King James Version. Yeah. Amen. And it reads, And being assembled together with them, he, being Jesus, commanded them not to depart for Jerusalem, but to wait, someone shout wait, for the promise of the Father, which Jesus said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons, for which the Father has put his authority. But you shall receive power, someone shout power, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. For the time that is ours together, I would like to simply speak from this topic, don't forget your help. Don't forget your help. We live in a society that is constantly trying to influence our decision making. As a matter of fact, economists estimate that more than $300 billion will be spent in this year alone on marketing only in the United States. In our consumerist, capitalist society, we are bombarded by marketing from the moment that we wake up to the moment that we go to bed. And this marketing is coming from people and companies trying to get our attention, trying to influence the way that we spend our time and our resources. As a matter of fact, my wife, Kimmy, she works in digital marketing. And one of the lessons that I have learned from her, specifically about marketing to younger generations, is that authenticity and vulnerability matters. In today's world, we want people to be honest with us about what they stand for. We want companies to be transparent about their economic and social priorities. We want content that is not a fantasy, but we want content that shows the reality of someone's life, whether you're on television, or you're an Instagram influencer. We want to be in faith communities where people share the truth about their journey with God. 
We want to be in faith communities where people are honest about their struggles and their tribulations that they have endured. We want to have a safe space to be human, to be imperfect, to be on a journey toward being made whole. And the truth is that before coming to Oasis, before I met Kimmy, to be vulnerable felt like I was putting myself on a path to social suicide, especially at church. The way I grew up, the only thing that I saw on the other side of vulnerability was judgment and rejection. I grew up not telling anyone about any of my business because they would inevitably go gossip about it. There was no trust and therefore no safety, or at least that was what I was taught. And as a young preacher, it was my calling to bring people into a community that I could not even trust, where I did not feel safe. And some of you may be feeling like that this morning asking yourself the question, who can I trust with my secrets? Is there a safe space for me to talk about my deepest wounds and my traumas? And I'm so grateful to have been in this community because I found about two or three people who I can go to. Thank you, Julian. Thank you, Marcellus. Thank you, Sam. And that's good enough for me because what I have been exposed to is the healing power of confession and of love. And many of us pray and we ask God for forgiveness and God forgives us. But many of us get stuck right there. For in James, the Bible says that if you pray and ask God for forgiveness, surely he would forgive you. But in James chapter 5, verse 16, the Bible says, but if you want to be healed, if you want to be set free, if you want to be delivered, if you want to be made whole, then we must confess our sins to each other, and then it says to pray for one another. Healing can only happen when shame and judgment and rejection are called out and are no longer the biggest threat to our personhood. Maybe three weeks ago, I could not stand on this platform and share with you this message. I could not share one of the most embarrassing sins that I have been committing for probably all of my life. But because of being healed, because I've been able to be with these two or three people, um, I don't mind sharing uh, this one particular thing with you this morning. And my prayer is that uh, we would all find one or two people who we can share some of our uh, most intimate moments with. But one of the most consistent ways that I sin is when I have pride in my possessions. When I have pride in my achievements and in my success. I have so much pride in being visibly successful that I have sacrificed the most important relationships in my life. The pride of my achievements came before my relationship with God. The pride of my achievements came before my relationship with Kimmy. And now that I have been made conscious of this, because I I was not always conscious of this, 
It was only through hard conversations with Kimmy, two years of therapy, and a really intense prayer session with God at Norman Houston Park, where I came into awareness of what was in my subconscious. And here's the truth. We all have some things. We all have some tendencies, some beliefs that are influencing our daily decisions and we are unaware of them. There is not one person in here who is fully aware of themselves because as human beings, we all have a subconscious. But we have to examine ourselves and reflect on that subconscious part of our mind because it, because it is in these things, it is in uh, the subconscious where I believe that sin begins to take root. Yes, yeah. I would argue that the root causes of sin are in the parts of our brain and in the parts of our hearts that we are unaware of. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians tells the church, examine yourself to see if your faith is genuine. When we examine ourselves and come into the awareness of the desires of our flesh. When we examine ourselves and come into an awareness of the desires of our eyes. When we examine ourselves and come into an awareness of the pride that we have in our possession, that's when God's grace can really take hold. Not just for the sins that we're comfortable with sharing and confessing, but for also for the sins that have us bound in guilt and shame. When I came into an awareness that I put the love of my possessions before my love of God and before the love of my wife, um, I was deeply remorseful. I cried like a baby. I cried because in my mind, I absolutely thought that God was first. If you were to come up to me, I would have said, absolutely, I put God first. I, 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 I pray and I read my Bible. As a matter of fact, I'm a preacher. I stand on the stage and I preach to hundreds of people on Sunday morning. Of course, God is first. But then I began to realize that in the back of my mind, everything that I did was to please other people. Everything that I did was so that I could wear the mask. And I love the mask. The mask looks good. The mask looks like Georgetown and Harvard. The mask looks like buying a house before the age of 30. The mask looks like working for the mayor. But beyond all of that, one of the things that I had to be honest with myself about, despite what I say with my mouth, what am I saying with my heart? And when I got to this point, I was left with a problem that I could not solve with my own strength. And here was the problem. The problem was I wanted to change the condition of my heart. And I did not know how to do that. So I called a friend. Her name is Rhea. Rhea is Kimmy's best friend. I said, Rhea, we think alike. I want to change the condition of my heart. What must I do? She said, David, that is a great place to be in. But in order to change your heart, here's what you got to do. You got to go to God. Because only God can change a person's heart. And that reminded me of Psalm 51 where the writer says, God create in me a clean heart. 
and renew a right spirit within me. Even the psalmist understood that the, God's power changes people's hearts. And I had to set that context for you this morning because the disciples in our text are going to need God's power to change people's hearts. For in the book of Acts, Jesus gives his disciples one of the greatest commands and assignments for the church. And it's known as the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is the command for the disciples to go out into the world and make more disciples. He says, go to Judea and to Samaria and to the other parts of the world to teach people that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whosoever believed in him would never perish but have everlasting life. Jesus says to go into the world and tell God how good God, tell them how good God is, how great God is, how awesome God is. And this command is not easy as we make it seem in church, because our faith to unbelievers looks irrational. When the apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, Paul describes our belief in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He says, it's a mystery. He says, this is the mystery of our faith. And as people who stand outside of, the, of Christianity look at our worship, as they look at our beliefs and our rituals, they can't help but to be in disbelief. And I mean, let's get real. Even the disciples had struggles believing that Jesus got up from the dead. Don't you remember Thomas? You see, Jesus had gotten up from the dead. The disciples had gone to see Jesus outside of the tomb. Jesus appears to them. He talks to them. Thomas wasn't with them at this time. And so the disciples, they meet up with Thomas and say, Brother Thomas, we've seen the Savior. We've seen the Christ and he is risen. And Thomas says, hold up, pump the brakes, wait a minute. Unless I see the nail holes in his hand, unless I can put my finger through the hole, unless I can touch the wound on his side, I cannot believe. Even the person who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who saw Jesus do miracle after miracle, still had trouble believing in the mystery of our faith. So if the disciples are going to be successful in achieving the Great Commission, they're going to have to rely on power from the helper. Our ability rather our inability to explain God in rational terms is one of our greatest weaknesses. I can't tell you how God changes the conditions of the heart. I can't tell you how God delivers people from addiction. I can't tell you how God sets us free from shame, but I know that he does it. I can no longer explain through philosophical and rational language God um, 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 because God explicitly says and has shown uh, that which he does is beyond philosophy. It's ir his ways are irrational that in such a way that our mind cannot comprehend. The Bible says that he does exceedingly, he does abundantly, he does above all that we can ask or even think. God performs miracles that defy the law of nature. God creates opportunities that go against culture and, and, and social norms. God does what God wants to do when God wants to do it. 
And my grandmother said it this way, God specializes in doing the impossible. And so what I have learned is that if we are going to convince people about the wonder-working power of God, if we're going to tell people about the unsearchable riches of Christ, then we have to go through spiritual transformation so that we have authentic revelation about God's power. I said, you and I have to go through a spiritual transformation so that we have an authentic revelation about God's power. And as I told you earlier, today's generation, we want to know the truth about what God has done for you. When we have authentic, vulnerable explanations and revelations about God's love and his correction uh, and spiritual intervention, when we can speak honestly and say that God's grace is really covering me and really keeping me and his mercy is really delivering me, that is the foundation for the helper to come to transform hearts and minds. God says, help me to set the foundation. The power of God is what the disciples would need in order to fulfill this great commission. And in the text, there's about 120 of them. Um, and, and, and they're getting ready uh, to set out because um, they asked Jesus, is this the time for you to restore the temple? Is this the time for you to restore the kingdom? You've got up from the grave. You've, you've defeated death. This must be the time for you to do everything and fulfill all the prophecies that have been in the Bible. But then Jesus says, I need you to wait. I need you to wait because in just a few days, God is sending the Holy Spirit to help you. And then he says, uh, you don't need to know the day or the time or the hour for what God is getting ready to do. And I like that right there because Jesus says that, that you don't have to worry about anything. And when we don't have to worry about anything, that tells me God is in control. And instead of getting nervous and anxious, the first thing that Jesus told the disciples to do was wait for the power. Jesus, God does not give us purpose without provision. He's not going to send you out into the world with your gifted self <laughs> without giving you power to fulfill the call that's on your life. But some of us, like me, we make false starts. We get out the gate before the Spirit has given us power. We take a step and then wonder, why am I exhausted? Why am I depressed? Why am I anxious? Why can I not like just do everything that I want to do? And the reality is because we took a first step without the spirit and that penalizes us when we don't have God's power. For the task at hand, the disciples need the power because they're about to defy civic government, 
who ruled over those days, they're going to need some power because they're going to have to proclaim a theology of that Jesus is king. And at that time, Caesar was king and Caesar was chopping folks' head off. If they said that anybody else was king besides Caesar, the power of the disciples that the disciples needed was so that they could withstand every struggle, every heartache, every barrier, every wall, anything that stood in front of them, they would need the power of God to break so that they can proclaim the purpose of Jesus and his life. Is there anybody in here know, who knows that you've tried to tell somebody about Jesus and there was something blocking you? There was something keeping you from getting that message across. I just stopped by here to tell you, you need some power. Because the message that they were going to preach, there was going to be no more division. For Christ said that there is neither Jew or Greek, male or female, rich or poor, no ethnicity or nationality, no class can separate you from the love of God. Government pushed folks to follow the law. And if they didn't, they were punished. But there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Paul goes on to say that the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his only son in a body like our bodies. God declared an end to sin's control over us, giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins so you can't punish me for what I've already been forgiven of. This was a dangerous prophetic message, but it was one that the disciples were told to deliver. It reminds me of my mother um, who loves to watch judge shows, like court TV shows, because Jesus says, I need you to be a witness in the earth. My mom watches Judge Mathis, Judge Judy, People's Court, Divorce Court, and one, of the, one time, um, uh, I was watching it with her, and one of the things that I noticed was that when the witness was called to the stand, there was a few rules that were in place. The judge told that witness to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That person would have to articulate their authentic revelation, their authentic experience on behalf of the plaintiff. They would have to try to convince the jury that what they said was truly authentic. And what I have discovered is that we have been called to be witnesses. And the jury is everyone who does not believe. The courtroom is the earth that we live on. And in order for us to begin to convince the jury of our side of the debate, we've got to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. And I, 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 I feel that, um, I find this to be di very difficult because I still, I'm still learning how to trust the Lord with all my heart and lean not to my own understanding.
Waiting on God is not always easy. But I have to wait for that moment that God gives me words to utter. Uh, uh, Waiting on God isn't always easy, but I know it's the right thing to do. Because something happens when you allow God to take control, even in the earth, even in the courtroom, as you're trying to be a witness. Maverick City said it this way, Jason, I've never seen a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But I've got a promise I can hold on in the middle of the struggle. God, if you said it, you'll perform it. May not be how I want you to, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to wait on you. For I've tasted your goodness, and I've trusted your promise. I'm going to wait on you. Isaiah said it this way, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Some of us are weary, and our strength has not been renewed because we have not waited on the power. But don't let no one disqualify you from being that witness. Because even Peter, who denied Jesus three times, in the next chapter of the book of Acts, in chapter 2, he's about to be the ringleader to actually go out and preach this gospel. And so what I want to tell you is, your past does not disqualify you from telling the good news about Jesus. It doesn't matter if you deny Jesus in your past. It doesn't matter if you call Christianity fake. It doesn't matter if you've rejected and judged folk who do believe. It doesn't matter if you've had a false start. It doesn't matter if you didn't wait on God to pursue your purpose because today is the opportunity for you to say, I messed up, God. I was wrong. I stepped out without you. But thanks be unto you for your grace and your love and your kindness that blessed me even though I didn't know I needed needed to be blessed, that covered me even though I didn't realize I needed to be covered, that walked with me even when I didn't even realize you needed to be walking with me. Is there anybody in the house who knows that I've had some heartaches and I've had some pain in my past because I didn't trust God, but today is that day where we can say, I've been transformed by God's love. But here's the thing that I want to say, within your testimony, there must be an illustration of your transformation so that we can have this authentic revelation. And the reason that this is important is because people would argue that if you've been transformed by God, then you should always be clean. You should always be made whole. You shouldn't be making any mistakes. You should be perfect. But here's what I want to show you. Uh, Timothy, the book of Timothy, Paul writes to this young Timothy and says, you're going to be transformed by the Spirit, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. The Greek word to be filled is in the present perfect tense. And so when we translate it into English, really the, the translation is, be being filled with the Spirit. Don't stop being filled with the Spirit. So often, we get filled with the Spirit, and we say that's good enough, and we'll stop here. But then life begins to happen. 
<laughs> and we begin to have some heated moments with some folk. Sorry, I cussed you out. And then, to people who are far away, we look pure. This is vinegar. But when you get close enough, you realize that we're bitter and we smell bad. But not only that, then I have some greed, always pursuing money, finances, success. But I still got the spirit. Then, where's my anger at? I got a lot of that. Let me see. (laughs) Then we get angry. I still got the spirit, but I got all this other stuff wrapped up in me too. And then I get into some messy situations that don't align with God's will, just like oil. And so I'm split on the inside between God's spirit and some messy stuff in my heart. And then last but not least, in order to make it feel good, in order to get over it, I go home at the end of the night and I top it off with a little good good. And this is what the world sees, a Christian who's messed up toe up, jacked up, hurt on the inside, and yet we say we still have the Spirit, and the Spirit is still in you. But the Bible says to be being filled with the Spirit, because as you're filled with the Spirit, here's what begins to happen. You begin to be made whole. You begin to be more perfect and clean on the inside. As you get filled with the Spirit, day after day, moment after moment, prayer after prayer, you end up looking clean again. And this is the purpose of the power that you need because you can't do it by yourself. I don't know how God does it. I don't know where God does it. I don't know when God does it, but thanks be unto God that if I just fall on my knees and say, Lord, I need your spirit. Lord, I need you to transform my heart. Lord, I need you to regulate my mind. Lord, I need you to renew in me something clean that God will show up for you and clean you up from the inside out and hate has to come out and greed has to come out and addiction has to come out and hate has to come out and hurt has to come out and trauma has to come out and people will begin to see that and they will say, it don't make sense. I just saw him last week toe up and messed up and now he's walking around saying that God goes before me to lead me. Now he's walking around saying that God stands behind me to push me. Now he's walking around that saying God stands on the side of me to guide me and above me to protect me and beneath me to sustain me and in me to keep me. Is there anybody in the house who knows that God has work in you? If you're like me, you stopped the first time that you received the Spirit. 
but you have to keep on being filled. If you're like me, the first thing that you do is rely on your own strength. But you've got to wait on the power to get you to that next level. And I just want to take a moment to pray for anyone who says, listen, I've been walking with God, but I'm not healed. I've been asking God to forgive me, to heal me, and he hasn't done it yet. Do we have to, would you just come down? Because I want to pray for you. But here's something very specific that I want to do for you. Because there are people at our church who are ready to connect with you. Who are ready to be that safe space for you. Where you confess your sins and where you can be made whole. I know that there's more than five people. Who are, who are still asking God, can you just take this thing from me? Can you just take this thing from me? And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come down there with you. 